All right, we are one minute past the hour. Thanks for joining everybody. I do not have any announcements this evening. And so as usual, without further ado, Robert has another lesson for us. Hey, hello everyone. This week I have bad news. My friend who normally records the scripture reading uh, was not able to do it, so you will have to listen to me reading it. I know it's not quite as good, but let's get to it. This is from uh, John chapter 11. Now a certain man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village where Mary and her sister Martha lived. Now it was Mary who anointed the Lord with perfumed oil and wiped his feet dry with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent a message to Jesus. Lord, look, the one you love is sick. When Jesus heard this, he said, the sickness will not lead to death, but to God's glory, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister in Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he remained in the place where he was for two more days. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples replied, Rabbi, the Jewish leaders were just now trying to stone you to death. Are you going there again? Jesus replied, Are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks around in the daytime, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. If anyone walks around at night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After he said this, he added, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to awaken him. Then the disciples replied, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had been talking about his death but they thought he had been talking about real sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and I am glad for your sake that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas, called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us go too so that we may die with him. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had been in the tomb four days already. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem. So many of the Jewish people of the region had come to Martha and Mary to console them over the loss of their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary was sitting in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will grant you. Jesus replied, your brother will come back to life again. Martha said, I know that he will come back to life again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even if he dies. And the one who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She replied, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who comes into the world. And when she had said this, Martha went and called her sister Mary, saying privately, the teacher is here and is asking for you. So when Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but, but was still in the place where Martha had come out to meet him. Then the people who were with Mary in the house consoling her saw her get up quickly and go out. They followed her because they thought she was going to the tomb to weep there. And when Mary came to the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the people who had come with her weeping, he was intensely moved in spirit and greatly distressed. He asked, where have you laid him? They replied, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Thus the people who had come to mourn said, 
Look how much he loved him. But some of them said, This is the man who caused the blind man to see. Couldn't he have done something to keep Lazarus from dying? Jesus intensely, excuse me, Jesus intensely moved again, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave and a stone was placed across it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, replied, Lord, by this time the body will have a bad smell because he has been buried four days. Jesus responded, didn't I tell you that if you believe, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Jesus looked upward and said, Father, I thank you that you have listened to me. I knew that you always listened to me, but I said this for the sake of the crowd standing around here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he, when he had said this, he shouted in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The one who had, the one who had died came out his feet and hands tied up with strips of cloth and a cloth wrapped around his face. Jesus said to them, unwrap him and let him go. And many of the people who had come with Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and reported to them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees called the council together and said, what are we doing? For this man is performing many miraculous signs. If we allow him to go on in this way, Everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away our sanctuary and our nation. Then one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said, You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is more to your advantage to have one man die for the people than for the whole nation to perish. Now, he did not say this on his own, but because he was high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the Jewish nation and not for the Jewish nation only, but to gather together into one the children of God who are scattered. So from that day, they planned together to kill him. Thus, Jesus no longer went around publicly among the Judeans, but went away from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim, and stayed there with his disciples. Now the Jewish feast of Passover was near, and many people went up to Jerusalem from the rural areas before the Passover to to cleanse themselves ritually. Thus, they were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple courts, what do you think? That he won't come to the feast? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who knew where Jesus was should report it so that they could arrest him. That is John chapter 11. Okay. Well, I'm going to go ahead and tell you guys, this chapter was very difficult for me to actually write my blog this week. And that, in a sense, is uh, ironic because this chapter has the longest narrative of events other than the crucifixion, meaning that in, in this chapter, we just see essentially a story. This happened, that happened, that happened, instead of some theological discourse. Uh, so you would think that this chapter is very straightforward and simple, and perhaps to somebody else it might be. But I find that some of the conversations had in this chapter are kind of tricky. They're kind of difficult to explain. So I am going to do my best. Now, let me begin with, I suppose, like a sort of apologetics note. And I don't think I've explained this. I, I presume everyone knows this. The term apologetics means to defend something, it does not mean to apologize. It's actually the same root word, but it means the opposite. 
So uh, we have a surprising fact here, which is that this miracle, which is the, the pinnacle of miracles in the Gospel of John, short of, of Jesus' resurrection, of course, it is not found in the other three Gospels. Now, the other three Gospels are called the Synoptic Gospels, or just the Synoptics. The reason for that is because the other three Gospels follow the same structure. They have a lot of the same material. So it's actually rather simple to put them side by side and go, okay, when, you know, uh, here's the story in this gospel, here's the same story in this other gospel, and so forth. Um, John is the only non-synoptic gospel, right? There's only four. So if you're synoptic, John is not. The gospel of John, therefore, it includes several stories that are not found in the other three, and it cuts out content that is present in the other three Gospels. So this is pretty different. Now, in the other three Gospels, the last event before, before the cross is Jesus cleansing the temple. And then Jesus has a long discourse that is quite inflammatory. Depending which one of the three synoptic Gospels you're reading is more or less inflammatory. Uh, but at least in one of them, it's clear that Jesus is all right, criticizing the Pharisees, you know, giving them the seven woes. And, you know, we can look at that at some other time. Um, but that is the last event in the other three. In this gospel, the last event mentioned before the cross is this miracle that we just read. Now, um, there's no argument here that that these stories cannot be reconciled, that they're contradictory. It's, it's actually an editorial argument. How can it be that the writers of the other three Gospels didn't even think to mention the story? They didn't even think to include it. Well, and there's really two explanations for that, or at least two. There's, there's actually more things that could be said about this. Um, but one would be that all, well, each Gospel is what I mean to say. Each of the Gospels has its own angle. Um, it, in that sounds at first like a criticism of, of the Gospels, and I don't mean that at all. I mean that each writer is uh, trying to kind of emphasize a different thing. We do this all the time. The, the example I give in the blog, and forgive me if, if, I mean, if this is not a great example, but let's say that we were talking about Kyle Rittenhouse. I pick on this case because probably everyone has heard about it. It was huge in the news, and of course, Matt discussed it at length. Well, we could retell the story in truthful ways and yet emphasize different things, right? I could tell you the story of Kyle Rittenhouse as a kid who went to help the community. And so he was cleaning up graffiti. And then I could very briefly mention, yeah, and then the poor guy got attacked, but he was able to defend himself and end the story there. Now, all that would be true. And what I was emphasizing in that narration is the fact that he was there to help the community. By the way, I'm not trying to get political here. I'm just using this as an example. Um, we could also tell the story in, in such a way that we hardly mention why Kyle was there, right? We could say, yeah, he went there apparently to, to help the community. But let me tell you about the attack. Three guys attacked him and he defended himself and blah, blah, blah. And I could explain that at length. And that telling of the story would emphasize Kyle's uh, self-defense uh, aspect. Okay. Now notice that if both tellings are truthful, then they're complementary. 
it's not that you know it's not that one is true and the other one is false it's that in one telling i was really i was really interested in one set of facts and in the other telling i was really interested in a different set of facts okay i think that well and not not just i think this is actually quite clear when you read all four gospels that this does go on to some extent that the writers um by virtue of what material they include and exclude and at what length they explain certain things they have different points that they're trying to get across. Um, for example, uh, the Gospel of Matthew is clearly written for a more Jewish audience. So he's really emphasizing the fact that Jesus is the prophesied Messiah and he's fulfilling all of the prophecies from the Old Testament. Luke, on the other hand, has a more Hellenized audience, right? Hellenized meaning more influenced by the Greeks. Um, and because of that, he he more emphasizes this idea that he is the Messiah, but he's the Messiah to the whole world. Um, then if you read the gospel of Mark, Mark has more of a Roman audience in mind. And he emphasizes more the idea that Jesus is ruler, that Jesus is king, that Jesus is the proper sovereign of everything. Um, which of course makes sense if you're writing to Romans who are thinking of Caesar and all that, right? Well, John has an even uh, kind of a, an even more divergent emphasis, which is Jesus is clearly divine and he is the true life, right? He's the way, the truth, and the life. So when you consider that, does it make, do, do the editorial choices make sense? And I think so. I think that uh, the other three gospels wanted to end in a religious and political um, conflict where John is trying to finish his narrative in a way that clearly shows Jesus is divine and as the true life and bringing that eschatological life. Okay? So that's one thing to consider. The other thing to consider, uh, this is called the protective anonymity um, argument or response, which is that the other three gospels, uh, they were written earlier than John, significantly earlier. Uh, and you see there that in, in chapter 12, well, we haven't read it. We'll see in chapter 12 of John that uh, the leaders are even thinking about killing Lazarus because this miracle was so stunning that Lazarus needs to be taken out of the picture. Well, it's quite possible that the other gospel writers then do not mention this story to protect Lazarus and his family from being killed by the leaders, which I, I actually think is, is quite quite plausible. Um, okay. So with that addressed, let's get to the, the text we actually read. Um, I break the action down in little like subsections. Um, I'm not going to cover everything in the text because we simply don't have time for that. But as usual, I'm trying to hit the high notes. Um, first of all, we, we need to pay attention to the setting. Um, Jesus is being summoned back to Bethany. Now, Bethany is only two miles, give or take. It's actually a little less than two miles, but say two miles away from Jerusalem. It is in Judea. This is the part of the country that wants to kill Jesus. Okay? This is the part of the country that has strongly opposed him. Jesus was more successful in Galilee uh, and even more successful actually outside of his own nation. Thing. Samaria, of course, we've covered that in the past. Um, he, 
is called upon by two women, Mary and Martha. Um, and they say, hey, our, our brother, he's dying. Can you come help us? They, they are close friends, right? These, these three people, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, are close friends with Jesus. Um, now, there is a bit of an argument here. You know, is Jesus going to go there? Because if he goes, he is putting himself in great danger. And the apostles recognize this, and they try dissuading him. They try saying, Jesus, don't go. This is not going to end well. And we'll talk about that more in just a minute. But notice that this chapter of John refers to Mary as the woman who anointed Jesus with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. That might seem like a strange scene. Um, we will cover that next week. Um, but this is actually a scene. This is a set of events that is found in all four Gospels. It's, it's kind of a big deal. But in John, it will happen in the future, right? This is what we call, or what we could consider a proleptic reference. Uh, that is, uh, proleptic means when you describe something in the future as if it has already passed. Because, right, in the Gospel of John, these events have not happened. But actually, the, the much more likely explanation for this is this is not a proleptic reference at all. This is John assuming that his audience is already familiar with the other three Gospels, um, or at least with some of them, perhaps not all three of them, but with some of them, because again, the story appears in all of them. Um, this gives us another clue as to the editorial choices that John is making, right? Because if John is working in an environment where the other three Gospels are already circulating, he's probably not so concerned with ratifying them but with supplementing them, maybe telling some things that didn't make it into the other narratives, okay? which I think explains very well why John's gospel is not one of the synoptics. Okay. Well, will Jesus go? Will he not go? The apostles, like I said, they, they try telling him, don't do this. You know, isn't that the place where they tried to kill you not long ago? And Jesus has, um, well, sorry, before I get to what I was about to say, first of all, he says, uh, I will go, but I'm going to wait for a couple of days. And why is that? This is so that the Son of God may be glorified. Now, of course, the Son of God is Jesus himself, but what does he mean by being glorified? Right? I, I think if we use that word, I don't, I don't know really how often we use that word, period. But let's say that we did. Hey, such and such is being glorified. I, I think we would assume that they're being praised, that they're being uh, elevated, figuratively speaking. They're being treated like a king, treated like a saint. Something along those lines. Uh, and I'm not saying, by the way, that those are improper understandings of, of being glorified. But I think it's actually a, a term with great depth of meaning. And in this context, particularly in this chapter and in chapter 12, there is an emphasis on glory, meaning revelation. And I mean that literally, not, not revelation like, like we're thinking of, you know, of, of like prophetic revelation. I mean, revealing who somebody is, in this case, God, in this case, Jesus, right? This will lead to the event that will finally reveal Jesus. 
And it, and it certainly does, right? And again, I'm not restricting the meaning of glory to that. I'm saying that is the aspect of it that is being emphasized here. Um, now, Jesus gives kind of a cryptic response, or what I would consider a cryptic response to his apostles when they say, hey, don't go. And Jesus says, hey, are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks around in the daytime, does he, sorry, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks around at night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Now, what does this mean? Um, the, the, the best way that I can explain this is actually break this down into a sort of dialogue that fills in the blanks, right? Because sometimes when we speak, um, what the other person said or meant is implied, right, in what I am saying. Um, so rhetorically, I think there's kind of this implication uh, I'm going to speak of this literally first, and then I'll, I'll I'll speak of this figuratively. Like if the disciples have said to Jesus, Jesus, it's too late in the day to be traveling. And Jesus is responding, the day's not over yet, right? That's what he means by there's 12 hours in a day. In other words, there's still time. Um, as long as there's light, traveling is still fine. It would only be unwise to travel if it was already dark. So that's the, the literally what's going on in that conversation. What is Jesus saying figuratively? Well, remember that Jesus is the light of the world that has come up in the Gospel of John several times. So, in other words, Jesus is saying, I'm still with you. I am who I am, right? I am who I say I am. So, trust me, I know what I'm doing here. Now, perhaps if I were gone, that'd be a different story, but I'm not gone. I am still here. So, continue to trust me. That's what that response is getting at. Um, now, I don't, I mean, unless people have questions, I don't suppose I need to go into depth here, but you will see that at the end of that response that Jesus gives, he says, the light is not in them. So, meaning somebody who's traveling in the, in the dark, the light is not in them. Um, this, I, I don't think that, my personal opinion here, I don't think that that actually has much of a theological uh, significance. It's not a theological point. He's just literally saying, if you travel in the dark, you can't see. Now, why would he phrase it in such a way that light is not in them? And I think it's quite likely that Jesus is working off of the extra mission theory of light. Remember that the ancients thought that light came out from our eyes, right? Um, and this is how the Greeks thought of it, uh, probably how the Romans thought of it. And it's actually kind of a sophisticated theory of how sight works. Um, but we don't have to go into that unless I suppose people have questions. But that would be my take on, on that little piece of the conversation. Well, um, the apostles, they don't, they're not quite understanding what all is going on here, right? Because at first Jesus says, hey, Lazarus is asleep. And they take Jesus too literally. You might be thinking, well, I mean, that's fine. Why wouldn't the apostles take him literally? Jesus said, Jesus said, asleep. But that was a common way of referring to someone who had died. So they probably should have understood, but at any rate. Um, and, but, but that brings up an important point in the conversation where Jesus says, the other reason that I'm going is so that you may believe. This will be more proof I would say this this will be kind of 
the irrefutable proof that the apostles will have to know that Jesus is who he says he is, and that his words are true. Um, Thomas then, uh, you know, he kind of represents the attitude of the disciples here. He says, fine, let's go and let's get killed with Jesus. Um, it's a little unclear from the text if he's saying this in bravery and resig or resignation, you know, like, yeah, let's go, let's do this thing. Or, okay, well, here goes nothing, you know. Um, but it really does not matter because what Thomas does not realize is that he severely overestimates his own bravery. All the apostles will desert Jesus before he dies. Jesus will die alone. Um, so there it it does kind of give us insight though as to how the apostles thought of themselves. They really thought we will die with our leader. We will never leave him. Uh, we will learn that's that's not really the case. Well, Jesus then arrives at Bethany. But um, oh, and let me cover the, I guess kind of the, the background here, what's going on. In it would be customary for them, for the Jews at the time to mourn somebody for seven days. They would bury the person on the day that they died. Then they would have intense mourning for six days. And when I say intense mourning, um, it it was very much sort of like an event. Think of a, the reverse of a wedding. Uh, people, particularly wealthy people, might even hire professional mourners who would go and wail loudly. Um, so very much a, a social event. It was, it was part of being pious to attend such a thing and properly mourn and wail. This is an event that many, if not most of the town, would have attended. This explains why when Jesus approaches Bethany, Martha goes out to meet Jesus. Jesus does not make it to the house. If he did, he would have run into half the town. Yeah, but that doesn't happen. Um, so Martha goes out and uh, and meets Jesus at a you know undisclosed location, so to speak, um, and they they have a conversation. Martha, she she shows great faith. Okay, she is one of the greatest examples of faith in the Gospel of John. And she says, she says, Jesus, if you had been here, this would not have happened, meaning you could have healed him. I have no doubt that that is the case. And then she follows that comment by the following words. She says, even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will grant you. Now, what does she mean by that? And I'm going to give you what... Most people say, not everyone, but what most people say, and then I'm going to give you my take on this, and you should probably agree with what most people say. Uh, well, it, many scholars and people who write commentaries, they see this scene as being kind of a parallel of the scene of Mary, the mother of Jesus, not, not this Mary, back in chapter two. Now, let me read that scene very quickly, and you, you'll see the parallel. Now on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no wine left. Jesus replied, woman, why are you saying this to me? My time has not yet come. He 
His mother told the servants, whatever he tells you, do it. So Mary, again, Mary, the mother of Jesus, follows kind of a two-step process. Number one, she presents Jesus with the problem. She says, there's no wine left. And step two, she says to the servants, do whatever Jesus says. Notice that Mary never comes out actually asks Jesus to turn the water into wine. Well, maybe this is what's going on with Martha. Martha says, hey, my brother's dead, and I know that God will do whatever you request. Just like Mary had said, servants do whatever Jesus requests. So perhaps this is an implied request by Martha uh, for Jesus to revive her brother. I, you know, Perhaps, uh, perhaps that is the case. Like I said, many people take it that way. To me, it does not make sense of the remainder of the dialogue. It does not make sense of Martha's reluctance to move the stone from the front of the grave, which will come up in a few verses. I, I think that what she means is slightly different. Uh, I think that she said, hey, you know, Jesus, if you had been here, my brother had not, would, would not have died. But I still have faith in you. That's what she's saying, I, I think. When she says, even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will grant you. Meaning, I still think you are from God. I still think you are the Messiah. I still have faith in you. Which is still a huge demonstration of faith, right? To feel maybe kind of bitter, like your Messiah has failed you, but to say, no, no, no. Regardless of what has happened, you're still my Messiah. So I'm not trying to take away from Martha at all. I just kind of disagree with other people on what she's meaning. Um, but. There you go. Now, would Martha, would Martha have been warranted to believe that Jesus could raise her brother from the dead? And really, the answer is probably yes, because Jesus had raised people from the dead. Now, those, those miracles are not mentioned in the Gospel of John, but they are mentioned in the other Gospels. And Martha, as close as she was to Jesus, would have almost certainly known about them. So she probably knew that Jesus had raised people from the, the dead before. And um, number two, Jesus' words would have been reported to her when he said that uh, this situation or this sickness will not lead to death. Okay. So again, perhaps Martha did, did think that Jesus was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Um, by the way, when I say that I, some... Uh, some opinion is the majority opinion. I am not implying that I did an extensive study of all sources and did like some statistical analysis. No, but I've been reading this stuff for a long, long time. And, you know, if if I pick up 10 commentaries and nine of them say the same thing, it, it's I think it's fair to say that it's the majority opinion. Um, at any rate, um, what are two takeaways that, that we get from this exchange. Number one, again, Martha is a great example of faith. There's no taking away from that. And that is stunning when you consider the social status of women at the time. You know, if, if this story was really being fabricated, surely the examples of faith would have been men uh, and probably rather wealthy men or pious men, we would expect priests and, and you know, the elite to be kind of these heroes of faith. That's actually not what we see in this story. We see a lowly woman. Um, now, 
The other takeaway, notice that Martha is confident about the resurrection of the dead and very much the bodily resurrection of the dead. We've talked about this before, so I'm not going to spend much time on it, but that is one of the core Christian beliefs that we will be raised bodily. Um, you know, heaven is not some spiritual place among the clouds. It's very much a place, like a, a real physical place with physical people with bodies. Well, then Mary is, is called upon by Martha. And when Mary heads over to where Jesus goes, the crowd follows her. Now, this is actually very appropriate. It's not the crowd being nosy or something. Um, they, the crowd thought that she was going to go grieve at the gravesite. And it was actually their social duty to go with her and also mourn and wail at the gravesite with her. So the crowd is actually doing what they ought to do. Um, but they find a surprise. They find Jesus. They find this miracle worker who is now despised by the authorities. And I mean, and by this point, Jesus is famous, right? So everyone um, has quite a surprise there. Then Jesus has an exchange with Mary, where Mary also actually dis displays great faith. She immediately says, hey, if you had been here, you could have healed Lazarus. This, he would not have died, uh, which is an expression of faith. And we get some tricky words in the Greek. Um, now, I know that I'm, I'm going through this quickly, by the way, because I don't have much more time left, but um, stick with me for, for another minute. Well, it says that Jesus is, at least in the translation I read, I should clarify, the translation I read, the NET, it says, Jesus is, quote, intensely moved in spirit and greatly distressed. Now, the words in the Greek, they, they imply some level of anger. Not, not pure anger, but some level of anger. Okay. And, and so it's, it's fair to describe Jesus as being both kind of sad and angry at the same time. Um, and, and then the question is, why? Why is Jesus sad and angry? Um, well, you, depending, you know, depending on who you read, people speculate. And, and, but generally, the explanation given is that Jesus is upset at their lack of faith. Right, that that everyone essentially is giving is it's just assuming that Jesus cannot do anything about the situation at this point. The crowds say that. Um, the, Mary says that. Martha seems to imply that, um, and so Jesus is upset at their lack of faith. The other possibilities would be that Jesus is just upset at sin that that led to death. Right, not as in Lazarus' sin, and that's why he died, but as in in, in, in the Garden of Eden, there was no death. And it is because of sin that death is a thing at all. It's a thing to begin with. Um, but that's not really all that's supported by the text. Well, here also I have a bit of a disagreement with the majority, I suppose, of, of commentaries. Um, so take this with a grain of salt. But I actually think that what we have here is kind of the epitome or the encapsulation of sin and fallenness in the sense that everything about the situation is wrong. If you think about it, it 
first of all, you, you have a family that is broken by death. And that was never part of God's plan. God's plan was not for people to decay and die, for there to be all this sorrow and pain. Okay? So it very much shows the brokenness of the world, of the current system of, of this fallen world. But not only that, you have uh, Mary, Martha, and the crowds not having sufficient faith in Jesus. You have the people of God, the chosen people of God, rejecting their Messiah. And uh, all these things kind of come together, right? And after Jesus has done miracle after miracle after miracle, none of this, quote unquote, gets fixed. And so it encapsulates just such a grim and dark moment. And, and I think that that is what gives rise to this feeling of both sadness and anger in Jesus. Um, I am reminded of a passage in Matthew 23 that I think shows a similar um, feeling by Jesus when he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who are sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would have none of it. Look, your house is left to you desolate. That's what I think Jesus is thinking. How I long to bring you to my fold. And yet, you know, this messy stuff keeps happening. Um, Matt, I don't know if you want to announce questions and then I'll try to finish my stuff. Sure. Uh, as usual, guys, if you would like to uh, participate with a question or a point of discussion, just write the word question in the chat. Nothing else is necessary. Just the word question. And I will uh, pull you in in the order that you post. Okay. Um, okay. I will try to finish quickly so that I can leave time for questions and comments. But then we get the actual miracle. Now, I think something that we should be attentive to when we read this particular miracle is the comparison to when Jesus is raised from the dead. Okay? Um, first of all, to set, the, to set the picture, normally a tomb would have been a hole in the ground, okay? but sometimes the tomb would be a cave. And in this case, it is a cave. So Lazarus was probably kind of standing up because when we think cave, we're thinking like gigantic caves, right? That people can like go in and walk. No, that that's nonsense. That's like cartoon stuff. By a cave, we mean a very small one, right? Where a person barely fits. So Lazarus is probably like standing in that cave uh, vertically. And there's a stone that has been rolled at the entrance to keep animals out. And, you know, and out of respect, you don't, you don't want the body there just exposed. Um, uh, the, a dead body in that culture at that time would have been wrapped in grave clothes. Uh, effectively, you know, he, he would have been wrapped all around, especially the face. The face would be wrapped very tightly, including his jaw. It would be wrapped closed so that his face would not be deformed. Okay. And, um, and so briefly here, I'll, I'll point out some of the things. Um, Jesus, he prays when he does this miracle. Notice we've never seen that before in this gospel, with the possible exception of Jesus thanking God for the bread right before he multiplies it and feeds the 5,000. And why is that? Because I think this gospel is trying to emphasize the idea that Jesus is God. Um, so he 
he can, in a sense, skip that step, you know, the prayer step. But in this case, he prays. Why? For the benefit of those who are there. To make sure that everyone understands that he is acting according to the will of the Father. Not on his own. Not as a sort of rebel. Right? Which is one of the things that he's accused by, accused of by the elite. Then um, notice that someone has to push the rock away. Uh, when Jesus is raised from the dead, from the dead, the rock is pushed by an angel. No person has, no human has to do it. Is what I mean. Um, the other difference is when Jesus is raised from the dead, he is able to just leave his wrappings behind. Uh, he has a different kind of body. He has his resurrection body, his kind of ultimate body. In this case, Lazarus has not been raised to eternal life. He has been merely revivified into his old body. So he doesn't just miraculously leave his wrappings. He's actually there like a sort of mummy. Now, I say sort of. The Jewish people did not practice mummification like the Egyptians. Um, but I think you you get what I mean. So just imagine how dramatic the scene is when they roll away the rock. Jesus yells for Lazarus. And Lazarus cannot move. He's wrapped so tightly. He can't move. He probably cannot even speak. Um, and so he's probably like mumbling, you know, like, get me out of here. Get me off of this. Or, or you know, untie me, essentially, untie me. Um, this would be, if you want to put it in a modern equivalent, it would have been like if Jesus yelled at someone in a coffin, be alive. And the person woke up in the coffin and they were knocking from the inside going, let me out, let me out, with everyone around watching. Very dramatic, just incredible. Well, um, okay, sorry. I'm going to go on maybe another three minutes. I know, I know that I, I want to leave time, but this was kind of a, a long lesson. Um, what is the response? Some people believe, some people go to the leaders and they go, hey, you know what he just did? And people are believing in him. And almost humorously, uh, the, the elite are like, well, we're going to have to kill him. Like, he raised the dead. We're going to have to kill him. Um, and they actually say, let me, let me quote their words. What are, we, what are we doing? Well, this man is performing many miraculous signs. If we allow him to go on this way, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away our sanctuary in our nation. What are they worried about? The political implications. That if Jesus is able to lead a rebellion and presumably fail, their Roman retaliation will be brutal. So they say, no, no, we got to put an end to this. And they, they put together a council. And who speaks at the council? Caiaphas, the high priest. Actually, to quote John, quote, the high priest that year. And that's kind of a subtle dig that I'll explain here. Um, but Caiaphas utters um, probably the most ironic words ever uttered um, because he, he kind of rebukes the other guys who haven't killed Jesus yet. And um, he says, sorry, let me find the quote right quick. It is more to your advantage to have one man die for the people. And I put in the blog, well, Chad, yes. Yes, correct. Just not the way he means it, right? Because he means it, heal him to prevent a rebellion, to prevent political retaliation. Okay, that will be better for people as a whole. Just get this 
guy, you know, to disappear. But there is real theological truth to what he says. It is actually to our advantage to have one man die for the rest of us, that man being Jesus. It is through his atoning death that we can have salvation. So what he's saying is actually 100% true, just <laughs> quite literally not the way he means it, right? It, it, it is a great moment. Um, and let me explain then that little description, and I'll be done with that. Um, John says, you know, the high priest that year. Why is that shocking? Because in the in the Jewish world at this time, the high priest would not serve for just one year. He would serve for many years. In fact, Caiaphas served for 19. In the Greek world, it was common for priest, for high priest to serve only one year at a time as an appointment. You know, that's like a almost as a political appointment. Well, so why would John say such a thing? The high priest for that year. There, there's, I suppose, three options. One, he really could mean nothing by it. And he's just saying, hey, Caiaphas was the guy who was in charge when Jesus was crucified. Okay, that's entirely possible. He could also just kind of be dating the crucifixion by saying, hey, it happened during the quote-unquote reign of Caiaphas. He's not the high priest, but you get it. Whatever the equivalent would be to, to the reign of a priest. Um, or, and I think this is quite lightly, quite likely, John is doing this subtle dig where he's saying Caiaphas, the high priest for that year, implying Caiaphas was just a political appointment from the Romans. Okay, uh, he, he essentially holds no more authority, no more power than some whatever priest at whatever temple you know, in the Roman or Greek world. Um, and um, to understand that dig, I think we need to remember in the Old Testament, the high priest served for life. And he was a hereditary position, just like a king. Uh, by this point in Jesus' day, that was not the case. The person did not serve for life. So really the high priest was no longer a true high priest. He wasn't royalty anymore. He didn't just have that position for life. Um, so, um, Okay, and... I'm going to stop there. Again, forgive me. I went so long today. We'll see if anyone has comments or questions. Sure. Uh, I will check in with your questions momentarily, guys. Again, if you would like to get in with a question or a point of discussion, just type the word question in the chat. We will get to as many as we can before the top of the hour here. Really quickly, uh, you referenced that, um, and correct me if I'm mischaracterizing, but Jesus had prior resurrections to Lazarus that John does not mention. What were those? And I know you mentioned kind of like describing a story differently in the Kyle Rittenhouse context. Seems to me like prior resurrections is a massive omission or thing to overlook. Why would that be the case? I, I think um, so. The I, I sorry, I quoted the other two resurrections. I have the verses there somewhere. Uh, I'm going to pull one up as I, as I talk about this. But I think the reason that John does not mention the other two resurrections that actually happened fairly early on in the story is because John was kind of saving that shock factor for this moment. Like he wanted to end his story with this resurrection that I think from John's perspective, it, it's not so much the resurrection itself, it's what it represents, right? It, it, um, 
it prefigures what will happen to Christ, but it also prefigures what will happen to the saints, that the saints will be spiritually revived. And so he didn't want to kind of spoil the moment, um, if that makes any sense. Okay. Thank you for the explanation. Uh, Brian, you're good to go if you're ready. Uh, yeah, thanks, Matt. Uh, I wasn't planning on getting into this, but it it, it follows so closely. Uh, it, actually, it answers the question you just asked, but it also follows pretty closely off of Robert's point from uh, Matthew 23. Um, there are a lot of clues that this is John's parallel to the Olivet Discourse. Um, if In the Synoptic Gospels, the last major event before the Last Supper is his his discourse on mount on the mount of olives um it it's it's sparked by him the disciples are admiring the temple after his remarks about how their house will be left to them desolate and then he he kind of corrects them and war- tells them that i tell you the truth every stone here every stone here will be to- will be torn down predicting the destruction of the temple and so they ask him you know, when will this be? What will be the sign that it's about to happen and the sign of your coming? Matthew adds, what's the, what will be the sign of your coming? So Luke and Mark, it's, if you pay strictly attention to the questions they ask, it's, it's, it's focused on the destruction of the temple and uh, in the fall of Jerusalem in the year 70 AD. And for that, there, I'm not. I'm not going to get into all the technical reasons for the dating of the Gospels, but the the critical, skeptical scholars date all of the Gospels to the year 70 or after because of that, because they uh, they start out already knowing that supernatural predictive prophecy doesn't happen. There's there's actually very good arguments for the Synoptics having been written earlier than the year 70. And sorry for the info dump. This is going somewhere. Um, but John's gospel, even conservative scholars agree that it was it was written later. And, and this kind of changed the entire relationship between early Christians and the Jews and uh, how, you know, how everybody understood the temple can speak just as just as this is the raising of Lazarus is conspicuous because this is in John's gospel because this is the only gospel this appears in. So is the absence of any of any explicit mention of the destruction of the temple in John's gospel. Yet the entire gospel concerns the temple, um, and it, that that might explain why he kind of arranges things differently. It's arranged around seven signs, and each of the signs has has its has a a, a rich, multi layered theological meaning that typically points back to the Old Testament in some way, connecting Jesus to prophecies and types. This, if you, if you, I don't want to lay out all the clues, but I would just, I, I would advise everyone with, with any interest in this to go read the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and, uh, and surrounding chapters, um, and then read this chapter again. It's notably the end of the age. You cut out a little bit for me there, Brian. Could you uh, repeat maybe the last 10 seconds or so? Uh, um, if you go back and read the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and then read this chapter again, you'll you'll see a lot of parallel themes. He's predicting the the end of the Jewish nation, 
when the Romans destroy Jerusalem and the temple. And here, their response to Lazarus's raising, they're they're responding in, in it ironically to preserve the nation, but really it brings about the end of the nation. And John's kind of looking back on that with hindsight. And another another clue that I think it's important. Um, he, this Bethany is on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. Um, the Mount, the Olivet Discourse, of course, was delivered on the Mount of Olives, and he's not talking about the end of the age directly here, but he is talking about it's sort of a like he's talking about the resurrection at the end of history, which is sort of the what what the what what his resurrection was to his crucifixion. The the general resurrection will be to the dark times at the end of the age, which the fall of Jerusalem prefigured. But, but anyway, I, I could go on and on about this. I know there are other questions. I apologize for taking up so much time. I would just advise you to, to read those two chapters and side by side. And, and I think a lot of those things will jump out. Sure. Thanks for the thoughts, Brian. Uh, did you have any commentary on that, Robert? No, I, I've never really done that comparison, what he's suggesting, and I may have to do it. I, I mean, clearly, the events happen at roughly the same time in the story, you know, so I, I think that that is entirely plausible that um, these these chapters in different Gospels roughly correspond. Okay, uh, next up we have Chris, I believe. Yeah, Chris, go ahead and uh, chime in if you're ready. Yeah, thank you. Um, so, Robert, one, you know, when you were talking about the different Gospels kind of reporting different events, you know, it, it to me, Tell me if you agree. I find that to be one of the strengths of the Bible, kind of kind of like you have. It's like if four people all saw a car crash, they, they would talk about it a little differently. But all those things would complement and interweave and add up to a coherent narrative. And uh, and another thing is um, there's a couple of clues that John was going to outlive the other disciples. I think, and, and I'll just let you speak to that a little bit, but tell me if you agree. No, I, I agree with you. Um, you know, one of the things I was surprised by, at first when you read the synoptics, it um, th there are some differences, which again, I agree with you, is, it is a strength. It really shows that these are independent witness testimonies, but they're close enough that I, at first I felt like they're all kind of copying from the same source, so how independent are they really? But the older I got and the more I got into this, the more I realized that was just my own ignorance. Whenever you read these three gospels in Greek, which I cannot, I can study the Greek. I cannot just read the Greek. So let me clarify that point. But you realize that all three gospels, although, although they include similar material, hence the name, um, they are written in very different styles, they use very different words. Clearly, some of the writers are better in Greek than the than some of the others. Um, there's there's one that clearly is thinking in his own Semitic language, and he's trying to write in Greek, and so he uses Semitic expressions. Um, so yeah, I actually, when you realize that that these truly are different sources testifying to the same event, I think it is a huge strength. Thanks, Chris. Uh, if you have a follow-up thought, go for it. No, uh, thanks, Robert. That's very well stated. All right. Thank you, Chris. Uh, those are the questions that we have requested for now. So once again, if there are more thoughts or questions people have, just write question in the chat and I'll be happy to bring you in. But with the time that we do have left, 
you, um, Robert, you mentioned something else that's on a topic related to Chris's uh, question there that I, I thought was interesting. And you, you mentioned, I was unaware of this previously, but you mentioned that each of the Gospels is clearly intended for a specific, I don't know if ethnic audience is the right way to phrase it, but a different group of people. And I'm curious uh, how we know that. Is it stated explicitly, I am writing for the Romans, I am writing for the Jewish people, or it's just some sort of context that we evaluate? And what is that context that we evaluate? Yeah, it, it, it is contextual. It does not say that explicitly, or at least if, if there are explicit clues, I cannot recall any. So somebody help me in the chat if I'm forgetting something. But um, it's just clear from the way that they're written. Like when you when you look at the gospel of um, I just don't want to get them confused. Like when you look at the gospel of Matthew, for example, it's it's very much like talking to Jews about Jewish stuff constantly, and it actually assumes that's one of the things you can look at, right? Like what kind of content or knowledge? Forgive me. They the writer assumes that the audience already has. And Matthew just assumes that the audience has all this Jewish knowledge about the scripture, about the Old Testament. And you see that less with with uh, Luke and Mark. But we also know to some extent when and why these were written. Like Luke was commissioned to write his gospel. Luke is actually not one of the apostles, but he was commissioned, hey, go interview a bunch of people and put together a really good, reliable historical account. So he writes for a more kind of global audience instead of a very particular audience. And and so yeah, it's context and what we know about who and why those the, the gospels were written. Okay, thanks for the explanation on that. Uh, I think we're all caught up on. Uh, well, it looks like uh, Greg has a question. Sure. Um. Greg, go ahead. And Brian, if we have time, I'll be happy to bring you in. Uh, we might not be able to, though, Brian, because we got one minute to go. So uh, we'll see what uh, Greg's thoughts are here. Greg, go ahead. Just, uh, can you hear me okay? Yes, sir. Kind of a quick question. I wanted your opinion, Matt, maybe, or any other people uh, on the chat, how it's interesting in verse 6 where it says, so when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he remained in the place where he was for two more days. And then he said, um, you know, our Lazarus, friend Lazarus is fallen asleep, but I'm going there to awaken him. I don't know what your thoughts are about that. Just that he heard that Lazarus was sick and he does miracles, but he waited two days. Uh, yeah, I guess I, I, I didn't necessarily pick up on the delay there. And I don't know that I have immediate thoughts about why that would be maybe robert could help me when he says i'm going there is is it because he's at a distance that takes a, a time to travel or why or is there some metaphorical reason for this or some broader reason well it, it is um addressing the text so it would take jesus about one day to travel from where he was at to make it to bethany so okay. he waits two days and then and then a day of traveling which would explain why lazarus has been dead Four days at that point but notice that jesus says the reason he's doing this is that uh, the son of god may be glorified and that the apostles might believe so the clear implication is and i'm sorry to put it crudely but jesus is waiting for lazarus to be like really dead like cold in the ground <laughs> that this miracle might be all the more uh 
shocking. All hmm. all the more undeniable, I ought to say. Did you have thoughts on that, Greg, uh, about the delay there? I just I, I just think it's Jesus, just like Robert said, that he knew he knew he was was sick, but he didn't go to him right away. And he, he knew that what his plan was to go raise him from the dead. And he said, like Robert said, this was the purpose. So I just wanted your other people's thoughts about that to hear that, you know, Jesus could have gone and probably healed him from the other stories that that would be my assumption, but he waited to, to seemingly make it even more, I guess, spectacular, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. Love, we, you know, we have some thoughts coming in on the chat. Donald says not just merely dead, but really, truly, clearly dead along the lines of what Robert was saying. And, uh, obviously very morbid themes, but that, that does make sense that if the guy had just flatlined, so to speak, I mean, even in the modern context, we hear stories about people who have m medically died. They've been declared dead and then they are one way or another revived, but there's, there's never a multi-day gap when that happens, at least that I've ever heard of. You hear about people who technically died for a few minutes or something, their heart stopped or something like that. But uh, as far as somebody being dead for days on end and coming back, that would be completely unheard of. And this is 2000 years ago, too. Not with yeah. modern medicine or anything in a tomb wrapped up. So Yeah. Well, thanks for the thoughts. Did you have anything else before we let you go? Nope, that's it. Okay. Well, we are a couple of minutes past the hour, so we will have to leave it there. But I appreciate everybody's thoughts. Uh, Robert, did you have anything else to say before we're out of here? Nope. Thank you, everyone, for the discussion. All right. Thanks, Robert. And as usual, uh, if you guys missed any part of the lesson, you can listen back uh, on the audio uh, podcast feed of the show. It's it's all available on the Bible study page of the website, linked from the homepage. And one thing I have, uh, often forget to mention, too, and I appreciate Tim in the chat reminding people, um, if you are a live participant or if you're a person who listens maybe to the podcast feed later and you have some thoughts that you'd like to share with Robert or with me, um, you can head on over to the website on the Bible study page. There is a contact form to get in touch with Robert personally, or of course you can use the website to get in touch with me as well. Uh, just opening up that interactivity for people who maybe aren't here when the uh, the Zoom call itself is live. So uh, appreciate everybody's participation. Of course, we will be back here next week uh, as usual, 8 p.m. Eastern time on Saturday, October 15th. Until then, have a great week.